Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world. The headline-making science news that warrants a step back and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the weekly sideshow where we hope to cover just that and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm Thanisharya Rajendran. And I'm Jun Kim. And today we're going to get up to date on everything from tomatoes to plastic eating enzymes in another discussion on the sidelines. Are you familiar with horseshoe crabs? Yes, I am. They look like very crawl flattened spiders. Yeah, I think I, I think I like your description a little better. <laughs> They're the descendants of trilobites, and there were tons and tons of types of trilobites that used to, you know, swim around in prehistoric waters. And, you know, the thing that was so special about them was that they had incredible eyesight. And that was because they had things called compound eyes. So I'm, I'm sure you've also maybe seen like the eyes of a bug, right? They have like hundreds of these like mini eyes that all come together to make one big eye, right? Yeah, it's, it's freaky. <laughs> yeah, it's a little freaky for sure. So some trilobites or most of these trilobites have had these compound eyes, but way stronger than bugs. They are thousands of independent eye units and their own retinas are, are working and they just work together. So there's one specific type of trilobite, Dalmanadita socialis. And that trilobite was very, very, I, I suppose they had very good eyesight. But the more interesting thing was they had a very good depth of field. So a depth of field basically means what can you focus with certain distances away? So for example, if you've ever taken like a landscape photo before and like maybe you're taking a photo of a friend behind like a big mountain landscape, let's say, you want to make sure that the person you're taking a photo of, but also the beautiful mountains in the background are all focused, right? It wouldn't be as nice if like just the person was focused and the mountains were blurry. And it also wouldn't be nice if the mountains were focused, but the person was blurry. So that's what depth of field means. How far of a distance can you get things to all focus together? So this new lens, is incredible with this depth of field. It is able to clearly, clearly focus on something that is three centimeters in front of it and something that is 1.7 kilometers in front of it simultaneously. So if you put like a little, I don't know, let's say a little figurine, three centimeters in front of this camera, and you wanted it to appear clear in front of a mountain 1.7 kilometers away, they would both appear clear, not blurry whatsoever. And that is the incredible, incredible finding that they, I, I guess they developed inspired by this eye of the trilobite. Oh, that is so cool. You know what that reminds me of? The whole concept of like people going around taking tiny, tiny figurines or like action dolls and putting it in front of sceneries. Mm -hmm. And it's what, like, what does that uh, remind you of? Like those monsters, like Godzilla dolls, like destroying mountains and whatnot. Mm, yes, I, I love those funny photos where, uh, you know, people take their little figurines or, or toys and they make it look like they're just, just like in the actual background. Yeah, yeah exactly. that, that's cool. So you can take those photos, but even more extreme, I guess, with, uh, with uh, these new lenses. <laughs> exactly. That is so cool. So the next story I have for you is not something to do with the ancient past, but something to do with modifying genes in the future. So scientists have currently turned to tomatoes as a source of vitamin D. So when you think of all the vitamins that you have to 
take on a daily basis? What do you think you're most like likely to ignore or not have enough of in your diet? Ignore? Probably. I mean, <laughs> everything except for vitamin C. It, it, maybe that's a weird <laughs> answer, but I keep hearing like, oh, we should, you know, have vitamin C this way and that way. But all the other vitamins kind of get pushed to the side. Oh, yeah, no. Vitamin C is a completely different topic because right now they're also pushing it in skincare. So you're not just eating it, but you also have to put it on your skin. But no, today we're going to talk about vitamin D because most regions of the world during like the winter months, we have very short sunlight. So we can naturally produce precursors, which is the original state and non-active form of vitamin D but you need sunlight to break it down and actually have usable vitamin D. But oftentimes we're either inside completely ignoring the sun or there's just not enough sunlight, especially the higher latitudes that you go to. Right. And that's also good to know just that like, you know, it's not the sun just giving you vitamin D, but rather it is that the sun is an important part of, I guess, using the precursors to turn into vitamin D. I think that small distinction is a very good one to make. But, but sorry, yes, continue about this uh, interesting story with tomatoes and vitamin D. So it's important. And a lot of like animal products usually have this precursor or like vitamin D in general, but obviously everyone have very di- different diet restrictions and not everyone have the same access to food. So a group of scientists recently published a picture in paper in, I think, Nature Plants. So another bit of food science that I love to talk about. And where they talked about genetically modifying tomatoes so that they become rich in vitamin D and becomes a good supplement or almost like a substitute for a lot of places that might not have access to vitamin D rich foods. So how this works is that tomatoes or like tomato related plants in that family typically have a higher level of precursors for vitamin D in general. But they also have two particular genes that help them convert that precursor and then use it up for themselves as plants. So what this group of researchers have done was that they used um, genetic modification tool to knock out one of the genes called 7DR2. So knocking out basically means this gene is no longer active. So it's not doing the path it's supposed to be doing. So this causes them to accumulate the pro-vitamin D3, which is the precursor that we're looking for, without actually affecting the plant process because it's a single gene. And this is how they came up with this modified tomato. And it says that these tomatoes alone can provide 20% of the recommended daily allowance of vitamin D in the UK. So 20%, so you can eat five tomatoes and you're good. You're good for your vitamin D intake daily. That's pretty good. Yeah. And it's really good because vitamin D is, you don't really think about it, but it's so important because it's the vitamin that helps you regulate calcium in your body. So that means stronger bones. And there's some evidence saying that if you have too low of a level for vitamin D, it is linked to like cardiovascular problems and some other health issues and 
obviously cardiovascular problems is a huge leading like source of ailment in different populations. Yeah, and I think this is really important too to talk about because most people think like, I'm just going to go outside and that's all the vitamin D I need. But, you know, you do need the precursors. You need to, you know, maybe eat the, the, the food that gets you the precursors or I know there's also just the supplemental pills that give you the precursors. Uh, but, you know, now you can have tomatoes <laughs> as long exactly. as they're genetically modified. That's really cool. So I want to keep talking about uh, this, you know, genetic engineering and genetic modification because, you know, we borrow from nature, right? And we just try to make it better. Even uh, that story about the lenses that I just did, we, you know, this is kind of called biomimicry, right? Where biology and biotechnology mimic natural biology to try and make something uh, in, in the technological world. And the next one I want to talk about is actually plastic eating enzymes. So have you heard about those bacteria that can eat plastics? This was a, a finding that they had a, a few years ago. I think I might have heard about it in passing, but not Yeah, really maybe in the news or something. Yeah. Exactly. So this actually happened six years ago. This this hit the news exactly six years ago. Ah, we have found a bacteria that can kind of eat plastics. That That's kind of what it was. The limitations of that study was that the bacteria can break down plastic, but, you know, only specific kinds of plastic. It was very limited. So what they've done is, you know, they've taken from this bacteria six years ago that they found and they isolated just a single enzyme. And an enzyme is something that breaks something down. So typically in the human body, uh, you know, you need to break down sugar. So there is an enzyme that breaks down sugar. In this case, our enzyme that we're talking about breaks down plastic and it's called PETase, P-E-T-A-S. And that's just the enzyme that breaks down the type of plastic called PET. PET or polyethylene terephthalate. Now, this specific enzyme, they looked at all 290 amino acids in it and they analyzed every single one to see, you know, what can we change? Maybe we can, you know, take out this amino acid and put in this amino acid. It's a very complicated process because there's a lot of amino acids and you need to make sure that uh, the, the replacement you make is ideal, perfect. And if you make a wrong replacement, it destroys the entire enzyme. So they did a very extensive study on this. And, and after all the work they did, the only thing they did was they looked at three. They looked at three amino acids and did small changes in them. But those very, very small changes improved the, the efficacy or the ability for this enzyme to break down plastic substantially. So here, here's the results of the study. I guess this is the, the interesting part. <laughs> so imagine, I guess, kind of like a to-go box that you might get at a restaurant. Uh, not too big, not too small. Definitely smaller than a pizza box, but definitely bigger than like a hot dog container. I, I don't know really how to give a good scale to this, but hopefully that helps. So imagine a to-go box about that size. In about 48 hours, this enzyme can completely completely degraded it's gone so it's no remnants of it 48 hours and i think that's pretty cool and the, the other part on this is that you can use the degraded waste products to recycle and recycle it to make new plastics so yeah they, they found a way to be a lot more effective with it 48 hours is a very short time to degrade an entire like a plastic completely and the fact that you can recycle the waste products to make new plastics you know gives a little bit of sustainability to this finding as well no, that is so cool. When you said like an entire to-go box, I was like, oh, wow. In yeah. 48 hours, I didn't, I thought it would take like years to break it down. I know even with the enzymes, but this is so cool. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, when you put it, 
naturally into the environment, we are told things like, ah, this will naturally biodegrade in a thousand years or something like that, right? So why not do it in two days if you can? Uh, But there are some limitations still. And I think the biggest one is, unfortunately, there are tons and tons of types of plastics. Uh, This enzyme can only break down PET, this very specific kind of plastic. So there there, there are others that are tougher to break down. So that's one big thing. And another limitation is that this can't really happen in the in nature. This has to be in like lab conditions because it's it works best only when maintained at a temperature of 50 degrees Celsius. So that is far hotter than any natural. Um, well, actually, there are many natural places where you can reach 50 degrees Celsius, of course, but it's far hotter than most natural spaces uh, in the outdoors. So it, it does usually have to be like lab maintained. But you know, at the end of the day, this is just another example of using what nature provides us, you know, adding some engineering of our own to create something more efficient and hopefully, you know, changing the world with it, you know? No, that is so cool. And like 50 degrees, you don't really think about it, but it's like halfway to boiling. That's how hot exactly. it is. Halfway to boiling. But yeah, no, my biggest concern like around this, like, like you said, there's so many different types of plastic and I hear about new kinds of like plastic hybrids or like different materials every single day that are more sturdier more tougher (laughs) and like god how are we ever gonna get rid of these exactly yeah so on that note i'm shifting to more of a medical field what i have for you today is this new paper specifically showing us how Parkinson disease affects the brain of those with this ailment. So previously in the past, we kind of had an idea or we still have an idea of which region of the brain that Parkinson affects. And it is typically known as, okay, this is going to be a little bit of a hard word to say. Well, at least for me, it's substantia. Nigra, I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not entirely sure. But anyways, that's usually the region that we think are is being affected. And to be more specific, it's usually the dopamine making cells. Because dopamine making cells are responsible, are partly responsible for movement and stuff like that. And Parkinson is a disease that affects people's ability to move smoothly cause balance issues, causes rigidity, and most importantly, causes tremors. And in the U.S. alone, like about a million people a year are diagnosed to have Parkinson. So it is a very like pressing disease that we should be researching on and looking into more and more. So one of the ideas on how to treat Parkinson that came about was trying to replace replace that region of the brain with new dopamine making cells but it's too big of a scale in terms of an operation or treatment to actually have done because you're completely replacing it right so i like to think that in medicine in treatment in general the more specific you are the better, the more downstream the treatment is and more specific the function is, the better because you're not affecting or unconsciously affecting other functions that you don't know of. That makes sense. So what a group of researchers done and they published this result in Nature Neuroscience was that they isolated the nuclei from 
eight healthy brains as well as a few brains of people that passed away due to Parkinson or related diseases and then compared that region of the brain. And more specifically, they compared the 10 distinct dopamine making cell types in that region. And they found that one of the most clear difference between the healthy brains and the brains from Parkinson patients was one group of dopamine making cells who are missing. And these cells are specifically found in the lower part of the substantia nigra and have an active gene called AGTR1. Now we're not entirely sure what that gene does, but right now it's just used as a marker or, or a way to indicate that these are the genes or cells that are missing in the Parkinson disease. So now they're looking into ways to actually replace this group of cells. But obviously, before you can do that, you actually need to figure out what these cells do besides their dopamine-making uh, functions, as well as, like, are there any specific side effects you might have from that? But yeah, we're one step closer into figuring out what exactly happens with Parkinson. Yeah, it's just one of those very, very complex situations because in the human body, one thing will do multiple things, right? It's, yes. it's not like you can just take one thing out and not expect other cascading effects or unintended side effects. So it's a very, very delicate process. I, I think it's really cool that they've been, you know, isolating this further and further, but it, it only goes to show we are actually quite far away from understanding many, many diseases and complications. But no, this is great research. Very, very interesting stuff. Yeah, I like to think about it. For example, if you get an infection and the doctor gives you an antibiotic for like a bacterial infection, you're not just like removing or like discarding that specific bacteria. They're stripping you of all that bacteria in any specific region where mm -hmm. you apply the antibiotic to. So it's yeah, kind exactly. of like that. You're kind of vulnerable for that period of time. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. more specific of a target, for example, if you get like an antibacteria that's specific for one bacteria, the better. Yeah, that exactly. kind of thing. Yeah, it is hard to be specific too because there's just so many similarities between you know bacteria or or genes or whatever you're targeting. So exactly. The next story I have is impressive for what it is. But it's actually even more impressive based on who the finding is from. So I'm going to tell you the finding, and then I'm going to tell you who has completed this finding, or, or at least made this new invention. So someone has developed a homemade prosthetic arm that can be remotely controlled using an EEG instead of invasive brain surgery. So let me explain this a little bit. So typically, if you have a prosthetic arm and you want to control the arm but more importantly this is actually possible even feel sensations from that arm probably not to the same sensitivity of an actual arm but in the event that you maybe lost an arm this is still a huge huge uh you know uh advancement for you uh in that world and you need to do open brain surgery to implant a chip or a sensor right into your motor cortex. That's the only way you can really control a prosthetic arm, only using your brain. And this typically costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, so not very accessible. 
And what this person did was instead, they just use a brain sensor that you like kind of wear like headphones just over your brain and it senses your brain waves. Uh, that's pretty much how an EEG works. And it is able to control the arm just using your brain without any dangerous surgery. So now I'll reveal uh, the, the person who is behind all of this technology. Uh, he is a 17-year-old high school student named, named Benjamin Choi, and he has dedicated his entire uh, pandemic since 2020 into this project just as a side project at home, uh, like not in a lab, nothing like that. He just took a 3D printer and engineered an, a full arm, and he wrote 23,000 lines of code on his own to make this possible. So. I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, even a, a student as young as 17, or I, I guess when they started this project, they were even younger than that. Uh, they can just create something incredible just in their own basement <laughs> almost. Right? Oh my God. That is so cool. Like I hear about all these news of like teenagers, like coming up with all these inventions, finding like new elements and things like that. I'm like, how? <laughs> I didn't think I had that capacity when I was in high school. Exactly. That it kind of makes you think like, what did I do in high school then? Right? Like if, if there's kids doing this kind of stuff, I, I know when I did my science fair, I kind of talked about, you know, what makes the most efficient battery or something like that. But the, there's people really changing lives out here. And the other thing I really like about this is the accessibility part. You know, I already kind of mentioned how expensive the, uh, the surgery is, but also the arms themselves are quite expensive. Uh, this student 3D printed the entire arm and it was just about $300. So, you know, and it works perfectly. Is it like premium quality, the best uh, prosthetic arm out there? No, but the fact that it exists and could be manufactured for $300 in somebody's basement, not even like a, a lab or a research facility or anything like that, is pretty promising that you can probably make these prosthetics for quite cheap. And the 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 code that he wrote as well like i said 23000 lines of code it's actually an ai predictive model for what brainwave indicates what action because apparently if you think about closing your fist that creates a unique brainwave that is like you can isolate it it's different from other brainwaves so then the prosthetic arm then responds to those thoughts accordingly and i i think that's quite cool that you know it's the code is basically able to decipher brainwaves. So we've almost given AI or code a way to understand human thoughts in a way, uh, whether that be something kind of scary or whether that be something kind of innovative. Um, I guess that's up to people to decide, but yeah. very, very cool advancement for sure. No, that is very cool. When you said that, the thing that came to my mind was, oh, so now robots can predict what our next moves are going to be. <laughs> Maybe safe. we're giving them too much. <laughs> yeah, but no, that is so cool. Just thinking about what a small group, especially like high schoolers can achieve. And if you put it in like a larger scales and making it more accessible, like for mass producing it for a lot of people that might not have accessibility to this kind of technology just it's good it's amazing mm -hmm. i agree yeah okay so the last story i have for you today is about how dolphins may have turned corals and in coral reefs as their personal skincare line all right so everyone likes a good skincare line and I know I do. I have like a million products and like my siblings do and my friends do. It's just kind of what we usually do. 
Oh yeah, skincare is super important. I just, I just, I love my skincare. I do a lot of Korean skincare products as well. It turns out it's not just humans who are obsessed with skincare, but apparently dolphins too. So a group of researchers, when they were deep diving in the Indo-Pacific region, they came across this pod of bottlenose dolphins that are that were lining up against coral and sea sponges that were on the sea floor taking turns to brush their body against these sponges and corals so they kind of use this as their own private pharmacies because a lot of these sponges and corals actually contain 10 or more different compounds of antimicrobial properties oh pretty cool yeah, so they have act antioxidant properties as well as like different hormonal properties. And rubbing against this coral kind of like helps the dolphins actually maintain a healthy skin and a skin that's free of infections, most importantly. So for skin irritation and infection. Mm-hmm. And they don't just rub against any coral. No, they are very picky. <laughs> I, I honestly think like dolphins are one of the smartest animals in the world. I, I don't know how and I don't know how I can describe this, but <laughs> the way they think is so cool. So they specifically pick or rub against at least these species of dolphins three different types of corals and sponges. So the Gorgonian coral, leather coral, and a certain kind of sea sponge. And they do that because the researchers think that these are the corals and sponges with like the very specific antimicrobial properties that the dolphins personally want for their skincare routine. Right. (laughs) Very picky. Exactly. So that is like my dolphin fact for the day. But knowing that there's an underwater spa somewhere that specifically <laughs> cater for dolphins because they don't fight over it. They like line up, take turns and go through this. And it's like amazing. That's really funny. And, you know, on the theme of humans being inspired by nature and, you know, bringing something into their own, like, you see so many skincare products that are based on nature that are like, ah, like we have taken this, you know, enzyme isolate from bio- <laughs> like nature and we have made it appropriate into our new skincare product. And, you know, this actually just makes me wonder, I, I know dolphin skin and human skin is very different, but you know, <laughs> you could, you could benefit from like the antimicrobial properties of this coral. And we've put this, you know, leather coral into our new you know, serum or whatever. And I think that maybe that's actually a new avenue for maybe even human skincare products. And maybe that means one day dolphins and humans will share skincare products. That's very funny. <laughs> that would be amazing as long as we don't go for the same source as the dolphins and take away their skincare. Of course, we can't take away their spas or their skincare. Of course not. We, that, that's something <laughs> that hopefully does not happen. Yeah. And a lot of animals in nature actually kind of do that where both monkeys and different species of animals will self-medicate. I see. So it's not as sophisticated as humans. They don't have like special creams and like pharmaceutical agents, but it's kind of like natural remedies. Right. And and they're still, you know, going through the same process, right? Like they can't manufacture different medicines, (laughs) but they are still using what's available to them, which is, you know, very incredible. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today, June. 
Of course, thank you too. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about signs impacting your world. If you want to learn more about tomatoes, plastic eating enzymes, or any of the other topics we talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Side for Everyone, and on our website at www.signsforeveryone.ca. Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Tanishree Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Grant.